Please come with me to Romans chapter 15, verses 7 to 13. Romans chapter 15, verses 7 to 13. As usual, page numbers are on the green sheet. The page numbers are actually for Romans 16, because that is actually where we'll be looking. But we're starting in Romans 15. For those who don't know, we're in a series going through Romans. It's almost ended because we got to Romans chapter 16. But have 15 open to start with will be a help. Across the world and human history, there is division. Nations have been divided by tribal rivalries. Millions have died due to hatred between races. Societies have been split by social class division. Workplaces have been harmed by strife between management and workers. The USA and the UK are currently divided by culture war divisions. Many places are divided by religious allegiance. And Jesus came into this divided world, he came into this divided human history to do something no one else could to unite people who were divided. Only he could bring together divided people by bringing them into God's family. Only he could reconcile people with each other by reconciling them to God. Only he could change hearts and remove the pride and hatred that divides people. And so Romans 15 verse 7 says... Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. It's describing Jesus bringing Jews and Gentiles, non-Jews, together. Healing the biggest division that was known in their world at that time. And it goes on to describe these people united together. Verse 10. Again it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Gentiles are non-Jews and his people means the Jews. Then they are rejoicing together because Jesus has brought them together. That's chapter 15. To state the obvious, after chapter 15 comes chapter 16. And that speaks to these people who've been united together. It names some of them. Names that, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, show them to be Jewish and Gentile, show them to be rich and poor, united together. And it tells them what practically to do about this unity. And that's our subject this morning. Jesus has brought us unity. What practically are we to do about it? Well, there are many things, but we're going to glean a few from this, what looks like just a list of names you'd easily skip over in chapter 16 of Romans. What are we practically to do about unity? The first thing is we must be clear who we are united with. Verses 1 and 2, who are we united with? Chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sencrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been a great help to many people, including me. 
Phoebe was a woman who lived in Sencrea. That was a town in Greece. And she was moving, not just across town, not just to the next door town, but moving to a different nation. She was moving to Rome. But she didn't expect to just turn up in the church in Rome and sample it and see, does she like this church or not? And if she does, settle in and then self-identify as, I'm part of the church. No, it wasn't going to work like that. She had a commendation written by the Apostle Paul. As a leader of the church, he recommended the Christians in Rome that they accept Phoebe into fellowship. Now, that isn't just me reading a lot into two verses there. That's a principle and a pattern in the New Testament. That's why we read from Matthew chapter 16. I hope you took notice as we read it, and if you did, you would have heard these words. Matthew 16, verse 19, Peter is told, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Peter's told he's going to have keys to something. What are keys for? They're for opening a door or for locking it shut. What are the keys to? They're the keys to God's kingdom. But it's significant that God's kingdom is spoken about in context of the church. The previous verse has said, Peter, you're going to have a very significant role in Christ's church. You see, the church is the visible expression of God's kingdom. And then we read chapter 18, because we find the same words again. We have these words about things being loosed or bound or opened or shut. And again, it's in the context of the church. In fact, here it seems it is the church as a body that has this power to bind and to loose to open and to shut. The context there in in Matthew 18 is treating someone as not part of the church because he's not repenting of a sin. Keys they're used to shut a door, while at other times the keys can be used to open a door. What on earth is this all about? Well, Jesus said there are people who have keys to the kingdom of God to let people in, or to put people out. How do they do it? I know we've got literally a key to our front door, but he's obviously not talking about that sort of thing. He's talking primarily about the preaching of the gospel. Preaching of the gospel that tells people the door to God's kingdom is wide open. The door to God's kingdom is wide open because Jesus died to open it. Jesus died to take away our sin which was separating us from God. Jesus died to make the way open to God's family. Children here, Jesus died so I can say to you this morning, you are welcome into God's family. You can have God as your Father who loves you if you'll turn away from sin and trust in the Lord Jesus. That's one way these keys are used, to open the door by saying, actually, it's already open. Come and welcome to Jesus Christ. But those church leaders were also key holders for God's house by looking for evidence people were turning from sin and trusting Jesus. And then if there was evidence these people seemed to be turning from sin and trusting in Jesus, then they would baptise them 
to welcome them into the church. So again, I can say to you personally this morning, if you are turning from sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus, come and speak to one of the leaders of the church here to be baptised and welcomed into this church. Now sadly, the keys can also be used for the shutting of the door. Because sadly, sometimes people in the church showed evidence they weren't truly trusting Jesus and turning from sin and had to be put out of the church. That's explaining in principle the keys of the kingdom. Is that what it was like in practice? Well, yes, if you move on to Acts and you find out what happened in the church, we find, well, take for example Acts 2. The apostles preached the gospel and said to people who had been responsible for killing Jesus, come and welcome. Turn from your sins and there is a welcome. The door is open. And thousands did come in. And the people who turned from sin and trusted in Jesus, what happened to them? Oh, they were baptised and welcomed into the church. Sadly, later, there were people who showed evidence they weren't really turning from sin. And so they were put out of the church. They're exercising the authority Jesus gave them as key holders for his kingdom. Now, you can see similar if you change metaphors. Children here, have you got to at school yet being taught what a metaphor is? It's a sort of word picture, isn't it? And we've had one word picture. The church is like a house with key holders. But another word picture is the church is like a flock of sheep. And it has shepherds. We call them pastors. Pastor is just a word for shepherd. And they picture the sheep, and they're safely in the sheepfold. And the shepherd is in the doorway, guarding them. And along comes a sheep. And the shepherd has a look. But when the sheep gets closer, he sees, ah, oh, it's not really a sheep. It's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And the wolf says, let me in. I self-identify as a sheep. Does the shepherd let him in? No, he doesn't. I hope you see there a picture of the role of pastors with a church to guard the entrance. People aren't just allowed to self-identify, I'm a sheep, I'm part of this flock. Let's change the metaphor again. What else does the Bible say the church is? It says it's a family. Now, I'll give you an example of a family. Children, do you like going to McDonald's? Just about all children like going to McDonald's, don't you? I'll tell you about a very unusual McDonald's. It's a family called the McDonald's. I've stayed in their house in Zambia. The family is two parents, two daughters and one adopted son. But also living with them are lots of boys they've rescued from living on the streets. And they live there, in their house and in their buildings, in their grounds. And nearly always, uh, and one of those boys, as I said, they've adopted into their family. And nearly always in their home there are lots of visitors. They have this amazingly open and welcoming home. Loads of visitors there, just about always. A very open and welcoming home, but it is clear who the family are. The two parents and the three children. While very welcoming to visitors, there are certain things that, if you're a visitor, well, you're not family, so there are certain things you're not part of. And I reckon that's an excellent picture of what the church should be like. An open home with a very clearly defined family within that home. 
and you don't get to self-identify as part of the family. But you may be adopted into the family. If you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus, we are very glad you're here and we hope you keep coming. You've come into the house, now join the family by being adopted by God, by trusting the Lord Jesus, by making it clear in baptism that welcomes you into the church. Now, I hope you see the pictures there. A house with key holders, a flock with shepherds, a family with a very welcoming home, but a clearly identified family. I'm trying to persuade you, you don't self-identify as part of the church. The church has leaders with authority to identify who is turning from sin and trusting the Lord Jesus. Not that the leaders always get that perfectly right. Now, you might be thinking, hey-ho, is this some highly controlling cult I've walked into, run by dictators? And I want to give you some reasons why it's not. Just brief reasons why it's not. Uh, Those who've been here for the last few weeks, we've already seen in our series, in Romans 14 and 15 and 16, we have seen that the church is to accept those whom Jesus accepts. Even if they're weak in the faith, even if they disagree with us on some issues and they're going to actually be quite hard to live with because they think things should be done differently. The church is to accept those whom Jesus accepts. There's one safeguard against dictators running the place. Another is this. Jesus taught there were people who had keys of the kingdom. But Jesus' strongest warnings that he ever gave were for people who were supposed to have those keys, people who were supposed to be leaders, and misused that role to promote themselves. We can't take the teaching about the keys of the kingdom without taking the warnings against their misuse. And here's the third safeguard. The leaders of the church do this along with the church. There's an interesting example of this in Acts 9. Many of you will know that Acts 9 is where we read about Saul of Tarsus. He had been a Christ hater and he turned to a Christian. God changed his heart. And he tried to join the disciples in Jerusalem. But they were afraid of him because they'd heard his reputation as a Christ hater who killed Christians. And so they didn't want him because they were afraid of him. And so a man called Barnabas went to the apostles and he persuaded them, this Saul has been changed and you should accept him. Now that's a very interesting example because it says Saul couldn't just turn up and self-identify as part of the church. There were apostles who had authority for accepting people. But it also says it was a listening kind of authority. They listened to Barnabas They were easily persuadable and they accept it. I reckon our church members meeting where we consider people for church membership is trying to do a similar sort of thing. Well, I've been trying to comment on who we are united with. It's not the whole answer, but it's an answer we can get from verses 1 and 2 of Romans 16. That's the who. Now let's move on to the how how we show unity with them. 
Now, don't forget, we've already heard a whole section in chapters 14 and 15 a couple of weeks ago on maintaining unity by rightly responding to disagreements. But now we can get some more help on unity from chapter 16. How do we show unity with others? Well, first of all, receive each other in a way worthy of the saints. Do you see that in verse 2? Here's this woman, Phoebe, she's moving to Rome. Verse 2, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints. Of the saints. Children, what is a saint? Now you might think of someone who's got their picture in a stained glass window in a very old church. And they've got ST in front of their name. And a name like Saint Anselm or Saint Teresa. And a church committee has decided this person is so good, they can be called a saint. But that's not what a saint is. The people around you are better than that, if they're trusting the Lord Jesus. Because they've been made saints, not by a church committee, but by God loving them. By Jesus dying for them. By God saying, I'll have that person as one of my own people within my family. So the first thing we need to do if we're going to get unity right is get the right attitude to the people around us in church to get the right high regard and respect for them. Then here's another thing we need to do once we've got our attitude right. And it's this simple thing, help them. Look at verse 2 again. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you. Now, I don't usually quote Greek because it can be really annoying showing off. But this word help here is in Greek, the word pragma. That's interesting. Any idea what English word comes from the word pragma? Well, it's pragmatic. Pragmatic. Do pragmatic, do practical things to help others as a sign of our unity. Don't have a low view of ordinary practical action. Let's imagine two people. One of them, he can talk impressively. Wow, you should hear him talk about heaven. You should hear him talk theology. And the other one, oh, doesn't, not a good talker. No, but he can, he can fix leaking taps. And he'll give you a lift if you're in trouble. And he'll come round and paint your house if you need it done and you can't do it yourself. And he'll cook a meal if if you're housebound, stuck in bed. Which one of the two is more spiritual? Now the answer is you can't tell from my description. Because it depends. Is that talking and is that action done from love given by the Spirit? Practical and spiritual are not opposites. We show our unity by practical help to each other. And then here's a third thing we can do to show our unity. Show love and acceptance. Now, what is chapter 16 mainly? What's the most obvious bit of it? You notice when you glance at the chapter. It's a load of verses that say greet, 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 don't they? And it's going through these different people that should greet each other. And then it ends with verse 16. Have a look at verse 16. That list of greetings ends with verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. 
Now, I reckon greet one another with a holy kiss. Translated into English is greet one another with a holy handshake. In English, that's the English version. And if you're into hugging, well, I suppose you can have a hug too. Not from me. But, uh, and it, now, that's not fully serious, as you recognise, but the point is, it's saying, show your love and acceptance. Show your love and acceptance. Do your fellow Christians know you love and accept them? Do you try to show it? Because they probably won't know it unless you do try to show it. And this doesn't mean fake displays. I once went to a communion service that was for people from a variety of different churches meeting together and near the beginning they said, now we are all going to go and give each other the sign of peace. And a mild panic started to arise in me. What is this sign of peace? Is it going to be a holy kiss? What is someone going to do to me? Well, thankfully it turned out to be just a handshake and saying, peace be with you. But it all seemed a bit fake to me because these people never talk to each other from one week to the next, apart from just saying, peace be with you. This isn't isn't fake shows. It's telling us, show genuine love and acceptance to each other. Do your fellow Christians know you accept them as brothers and sisters in Christ and that you love them? And do notice it says, a holy kiss... If you're going to give a kiss or a hug, be careful. We are combustible material. A little flame easily sets us on fire. In other words, we're easily aroused to sin. Careful you are not tempting anyone, flirting with anyone, arousing unhelpful thoughts in anyone. Well, three things we can do to show our unity. We've had who we are united with, how we show our unity, and then thirdly, who we are not united with. Let's read verses 17 to 19. Verse 17 to 19. I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I'm full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Now, would you expect this? We are told safeguard unity by avoiding some people. We are told stop disunity by dividing from some people. That tells us unity isn't just keep the group together. Whatever you do, you must keep the group together. Don't rock the boat. Make sure there are no fallouts. It tells us it's not that sort of unity. I was at a meeting of church leaders, and one of them said, why did Jesus die on the cross? Well, we don't really know. No one challenged him. No one said anything about it. Why not? Oh, because the big message of the meeting is we are one church. We are all united together. And you don't ask questions that might cause ripples in that. Well, that's not unity, that's pretense. Because unity is making sure we are united around Jesus. And dividing from people who are not united with Jesus. So the people left really are united, not just a pretense. To ensure we are united, 
We have to separate from some people, even avoid some people. Who? Well, the answer's in verse 17, at least one of the answers. Verse 17 is telling us to separate from false teachers. People who are teaching things that are dividing the Christians. People who are teaching things that are self-serving, not Christ-serving. This isn't people who've just made a mistake about something the Bible teaches. We must be clear, it's not people who've just made a mistake about something the Bible teaches. It's people who persist in teaching things that lead others away from Jesus. And we are to notice them and avoid them. There are other people the Bible elsewhere tells us to separate from. That's why we read Matthew 18. Matthew 18 talks about separating from people who claim to be Christians but won't repent of sin. You can find the same in 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Thessalonians 3. This isn't just an odd verse in one place in the Bible. It's a, it's a repeated message. It's very important we notice those parts of the Bible are not just about anyone who sins... They're about people who claim to be Christians but are not repenting of a sin. You see, the pattern fits with the gospel. It's not avoid anyone who sins. If we're realistic, that means avoiding everyone full stop and go and live on top of a pole in the middle of nowhere. It's people who claim to be Christians but will not repent of a particular sin. That fits with the gospel. There are people here who have sinned big and bad sins. If we're realistic, that's all of us. But if you are admitting that sin, turning from that sin, and trusting Jesus alone, God welcomes you, and so do we. I can say it as simply as that. As simply as if you're admitting it, turning from it, and trusting Jesus alone, I can guarantee God welcomes you, and so do we. There may be people here who think their sins are not very big and bad. Who are trying to ignore they've got a sin they haven't faced up to. Maybe thinking, well, my church involvement will make up for the sins and outweigh the sin. But however small you might think your sin is, if you are claiming to be a Christian but not admitting your sin, turning from it and trusting in Jesus alone... God does not welcome you, and nor do we welcome you as part of the church. We welcome you here to come and listen to the gospel so that you will admit that sin, turn from it, and trust in Jesus alone. And then, well, then there's God's welcome for you, the welcome the Father had for his lost son who came back to him, the warm welcome of God as Father to that lost son. But if you keep insisting you're not the lost son, actually you've been a pretty good son who's done pretty good things, there's no welcome for you while you continue in that attitude. When I was 16, my Sunday school teacher turned out to be treating other people at work very badly and very dishonestly. And this became known, and the church tried to deal with it, And he dug his heels in and he's not repenting and he's not admitting he's been wrong in any way. And he had to be put out of the church. 
And some people in the church went out of their way to spend time with him, to show how friendly they were to him. Why? Oh, because it would be unloving not to. Because how will we win him if we don't talk to him? You see, sadly, this this teaching has a record of Christians finding excuses not to do it. But it's in the Bible. And God knows best how the church should be run. So we must be prepared to do it when it's needed. We should be less confident in our words winning people and more confident in what God's word says we should do. Well, don't forget, this has all been about unity. Who are we united with? How do we show that unity? Who are we not united with? All about unity. The Lord Jesus died to achieve something no one else could. To build his church that would be like a building made of many different bricks all joined together as one building. A body made of many different parts all joined together as one body. A vine made of many different branches all joined together as one vine. But think about the bricks and the body parts and the branches. They're all people. Each with a unique personality and background and circumstances. Each with different opinions and different ways they fall into sin. That the Lord Jesus should unite such together as one is a miracle that no one else could do. But it is not just something vaguely spiritual that somehow comes about in a vague, fuzzy way. We have to strive to keep that unity. And Romans 16 has given us some of the ways we strive to do it. Or to put it in a quite different way, nearly everyone says they want community. But every community has to have boundaries and leadership and an element of self-sacrifice. Will we accept the boundaries and the leadership and the element of self-sacrifice needed so that the church will be the community that we should be? Let's pray to God for that now.